we can open our Bibles to the book of Jonah, and we'll be looking at Jonah chapter 4 today. Jonah 4, we're going to be reading the first four verses. This is the final chapter of this book, and today we're looking at the topic of Jonah's anger with God. He, um, he does get angry, as we will see today, and he's First verses reveal that quite clearly that he does get angry. And we as Christians at times get angry. We lose our contentment. We lose our peace. And here we have a clear example of a servant of the Lord who is angry. So let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Jonah 4, 1 to 4. First four verses and uh, we'll dive right in. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish, since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and the one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. But the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? We pray, O Lord, that you would grant us grace As we delve into this passage, we thank you for the wonderful (coughs) truths that we've gleaned from this book, for how it's ministered to us, for the way, O Lord, you speak. There is no one that speaks to the heart of man as you do. And we pray that your word would quicken each one of us for your name's sake. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. If uh, we were to stop and consider what is the purpose of the book of Jonah, right? we, could, we could at least come up with four from what we've studied so far. Four purposes. First, the book of Jonah points to a far better Jonah, Jesus, who did The opposite of what Jonah did. He obeyed. Yet Jesus was sent into the storm of God's wrath. And for three days was swallowed up by the earth. Not because he disobeyed, but because he obeyed. So that's the first purpose of this book. Therefore, it is the gospel found in the book of Jonah. And Jesus makes reference to this. Secondly, this book shows us how God uses his servants in the world. Like Jonah, many Christians have the wrong attitude and behave poorly. Nonetheless, God can still use them to fulfill his purposes. Jonah behaved poorly. There's no question about it. And yet God used them. So that's, that's good news for us. 
We don't have to be uh, perfect for God to use us. Three, the book of Jonah reveals to us how God pursues sinners. Sinners that he turns into saints. He pursued the pagan sailors. All that storm eventually leads these men to recognize that their gods were false and that the God of Israel, the God of heaven, is the true God. And they humble themselves and make vows and they pray. Think for a moment how God pursued you, how he made you his very child. That's amazing. And four, the book of Jonah reveals the difference between God's heart for the lost and ours. Jonah is an indictment of the religious community. Jonah is Israel in his day. That's who he represents. He represented Israel. You look at Jonah, that's how Israel felt about the Ninevites. It was the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. That's how the Pharisees felt. And there are Christians even today that will say, well, you know, God's mercy is not for them. God can't love these kind of individuals, right? And so today's message will be highlighting this last point in particular. So let's look at Jonah's rage. It says in verse 1 that it greatly, okay, so it underscores the fact that he was very displeased. It greatly displeased Jonah. He became angry. Now we all know this emotion, anger. It's not foreign to us. And we could be angry for many reasons. The Bible does say that we can be angry and yet not sin with our anger. But Jonah's anger here is a sinful anger. This is is sinful anger. Because God asks, do you have any reason to be angry? What in the world are you doing, basically? So chapter 4 begins by underscoring Jonah's anger. Now, his anger is surprising because we thought that after his penitent prayer in the belly of the sea creature, he had learned something. He had humbled himself. He had understood his call, that he was a servant of the Lord, that he was to preach what God had placed in his heart, that Jonah somehow had changed, that he was no longer the Jonah that we see running away from God, that from that moment on, He was in sync with God, in harmony with God's will. Obviously, he wasn't. And so after this 40-day period lapses, after the initial message, and he waits 40 days and sees that nothing happens to Nineveh and to the Ninevites, Jonah seethes with anger. What can we conclude from this? For one, Jonah's ministry in Nineveh was half-hearted at best. If you notice, it says that it was a three-day journey to cross the city. Yet, he crosses or does his ministry in one day. He preaches one day, and then that's it. Already, that's a bit strange. Why would he just speak for a day when it would take three days to cross the city? I mean, crossing the city was required if the message was to be broadcasted to all the people of Nineveh, because Jonah's heart was not behind his preaching at all. He had no real interest in reaching the Ninevites with the warning that God commanded him to pronounce. He gives 
the message reluctantly. And only after the city was spared does his anger surface and he reveals what truly is inside of him. It was always there. He was just hoping that that Ninevites wouldn't be destroyed because after all, like I said before, there was no glimmer of hope in Jonah's message. Just when you think that Jonah had learned his lesson and had fully submitted to God's will, out comes a Jonah that is angry, displeased, upset. His nature had not changed. Jonah was an angry servant. Think about it. A servant of God that is angry with God. Superficial change is not uncommon. We see this happening over and over in our own days, if not in our own lives. There are people who will repent only to later manifest that they've not repented at all of their sin. A different set of circumstances will bring into the surface the anger that has been seething and brewing all along under the surface. In reality, Jonah's anger was there from the beginning and caused him to initially run away from his mission. It never left him. He only agreed half-heartedly to finally preach this message. He only acquiesced, but deep down he never wanted to go. He had not changed. Now God knew that. God knew that his change was half-hearted, that his repentance was not in full. God knew that, and yet he commissions him nonetheless. Because remember, Jonah represents Israel. Israel who's unwilling to bring the gospel out, unwilling to let others know about their God because they themselves had compromised. They had become idol worshipers. They had lost their sight of the God they once enjoyed. And he was hoping that destruction would come upon the Ninevites. And since things didn't turn out the way that Jonah had hoped for, his anger is out. He's in full view for everyone to see. He is angry. I don't know how many people noticed he was angry. God did, of course. Now, anger with God is nothing new. You may have heard of Christopher Hitchens. He wrote a book uh, entitled, God is Not That Great. I think it was in 2007. He died not too long ago uh, from cancer. And he was an atheist and uh, a very eloquent, articulate atheist. And in that book, he explains how God is not that great. That was his point. His brother, Peter Hitchens, who grew up as an atheist, was an atheist from, I believe, from his teenage years, eventually came to saving faith. And he wrote another book, a sequel to that one, uh, Rage Against God. (laughs) And he basically points out, uh, Peter Hitchens, that when people take a position that God does not exist, it is because they are angry. That was the case for him. He says that's the case for every other atheist that he's come across. And in my experience, I've seen that to be true. I remember once watching an interview um, it was with Stephen Fry, the famous, famous rather British uh, actor. And Stephen Fry is an avowed atheist, right? And he was asked, that, you know, about his faith, and he clearly said, "No, I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe any of that." He goes, "But let's imagine for a moment there was a God, and you were to meet him. What would you say?" 
to this God that for all your life you have said he doesn't exist. Peter, uh, Stephen Fry rather, answered, I would say, how dare you? How dare you let children, innocent children, get cancer? Anger. Obviously, it's someone he knows, someone that in his life or got cancer. And that's really the reason why people turn against God. Because God has not answered their prayer according to what they expected. All right, God, if you're there, please, and then whatever else you can add. And so the person becomes angry because God doesn't respond, doesn't answer as the person expected. Now, we understand that kind of anger. We've met people who are angry with God, who've taken the position that God doesn't exist because they're angry. But then when God's children, God's servants get angry, that becomes more problematic. Job was angry with God. Now, if you read the book of Job, you'll understand that his anger is there. He curses the day he was born. He curses the person who brought him news about his birth. He curses everything that he could. But God, he doesn't curse God. But he's angry. And he's angry with his friends who had come to comfort him and started accusing him of, look, there's some wrongdoing here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this kind of situation. One calamity after another, in rapid fire this way, there's something seriously wrong, Job. And Job saying, what is it? Where, where am I wrong? And at one point he says this in Job 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. He's saying, I've been faithful, I've been loyal, I've loved you, I've served you. Why is this happening to me? What is going on? Job was angry. What audacity to think that he could argue with the Creator. Job was convinced that if he could speak with God, he would show him that what was happening to him was wrong. That God had made some kind of mistake. Well, eventually God does speak. In the last chapters of Job, you find God telling Job, get up, you want me to speak? I'm going to speak now. And at that very point, moment, what you see is Job being bombarded with questions. And then finally Job humbles himself before the Lord and he says, I cover my mouth. I spoke once, I spoke twice, I will speak no more. God is God, and he does what he wishes and what he wills, and he can't make mistakes. In Psalm 73, you read another, of another man by the name of Asaph, who also was angry with God. Very angry. Who was Asaph? Well, he was the leader of the choir and the musicians at the temple. Here's a man of God, anointed by the Lord, gifted and high profile, and yet deep down he was angry. Why was he angry? Why was Azaph angry? He was angry because, as he says in Psalm 73, verses 21 to 23, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was stupid and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Angry. Yes, he was. Why? Because he envied the prosperity of the wicked. He would look at the wicked and see that nothing goes wrong in their lives. 
that they're successful in everything they do, he would look at the righteous and see them suffer and say, it's not right. The righteous should succeed. The wicked should regress. They should be humiliated. The righteous should be on a platform. What's going on? There's something wrong with this picture. And Asaph was upset with God, very angry, until, of course, he enters the house of the Lord, and there he begins to ponder on the end of the wicked, while you will take me into your glory, he says later on. Thankfully, Asaph admits that God had never lost his grip on him. He writes, you have taken hold of my right hand. In other words, while he was being like a brute beast, like an animal and angry, God says, let me just hold on to this child of mine while he has his temper tantrum and not let go of him. Isn't that wonderful that God does that with us? So what is truly amazing is to see God allowing his servants to express their anger toward him. Sinful anger. That's what we have here. And whether it be Jonah or Job or Asaph, God tolerates their temper tantrums and waits patiently for them to come around. That is remarkable. We can be angry with God for a number of reasons. Some of us are angry with God for our lot in life or for something that has happened to us, people that have hurt us, people that have failed us, people that have betrayed us, people that are very close to us and have broken our hearts, whatever. We blame God for this situation that has happened to us. And we think that we've been unlucky, that we have the right to be angry. And we hold on to that anger. We feel entitled to that blessing, to that person in our lives, or to a certain job, or whatever it may be. We feel entitled, and we don't realize that we're being arrogant, that we're being basically self-willed and self-centered. Many Christians as they're going through this, do so because they forget the riches that are ours and can never be taken away from us, the riches that are ours in Christ. And instead of focusing on these riches while going through the storm, they focus on the temporal loss or on what they don't have or what they want and what they long for, and they become angry. Like Asaph, we may look at others and... Uh, those who don't fear God and see their success and see their prosperity, and we begin to wonder, why do they have so much? Why do I have so little? Why is it that he's married and I'm not? And why is it that he has a house and I don't? And why, and you go on and on, the list can go on and on. All the temporal blessings that we are looking forward to have, as though by having them, it will make all the difference. We're going to be okay. Now we're blessed. Foolish thinking. Unbiblical. Psalm 37 reminds us, us as God's children, this truth when we envy others, when we feel angry. Psalm 37, verse 7 and 8. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not get upset because of one who is successful in his way. Because of the person who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Abandon 
wrath. Do not get upset. It leads only to evil doing. That's what anger does. When anger is allowed to fester within us, it will cause us to make stupid moves, dumb decisions. We'll say things that later we will regret. Our anger with God or our anger for something that has happened to us or is about to happen to us will only cause us great deal of harm if left to fester. Like it did with Jonah. Now, let's look at Jonah's reasoning. Why in the world was he angry? Look at verse 2. And then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish. Since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. Jonah here is basically saying to the Lord, I knew it. I was right. I knew this would happen. I was right to flee, to go towards Tarshish. Now, this seems like a very unusual statement. Okay, Jonah is angry, very angry. But why in the world is he angry that Nineveh is spared? Why? That's what most ministers want. That's what prophets want. Prophets, servants of the Lord, want to see the salvation of the lost. Why is he so angry that this city was spared the judgment that God had decreed against it? What is the reasoning behind his anger? If you read the entire Old Testament, you will see that most prophets did not have... a small amount of success. Most prophets were basically opposed and they were vilified. Take Jeremiah, for example. He was hated for his ministry, hated throughout his lifetime. And he was, he was frustrated that the people of God were not repenting. Isaiah, oh Lord, why do you cause us not to fear you? I've quoted that, many, that verse often. Here's one man who says a message very succinctly, very cryptic, without any glimmer of hope, and the entire city repents. Why be angry with that? He's deeply troubled. The prophets in the Old Testament were always troubled that God's people would not repent, that they would continue in their idolatry and in their rebellion against God's ways. But here was a prophet that had witnessed full repentance Why be angry? Jonah witnessed firsthand what God's grace could do in very wicked hearts. Why? Then do you know the heart of God as revealed in Luke chapter 15 when he says, Jesus said these words, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Did he know that? Jonah was a prophet. Didn't he understand God's heart? That God's heart rejoices? The whole chapter 15 of Luke speaks about the joy of the woman who finds the coin, the joy of the shepherd who finds the erring sheep, and the joy, finally, of the father who receives his son back home. That's the point. The point is God's heart is a heart of joy over sinners who repent who turn to him and say, I've sinned. Have mercy upon me. 
Didn't Jonah know this? Of course he did. In fact, notice he even quotes a passage taken from Exodus chapter 34. That passage found in this verse, verse 2, is really an extraction of what happened in the life of Moses. When Moses says, I want to see your glory, and God says, well, hide in this opening of the mountain. You can't see my face, but you're going to see my backside. And when God passes in front of this opening, there's the voice of the Lord that's echoing forth these words. It's found in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Notice, he passes and he proclaims. And here again, you see more than one person because it's the Godhead. The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. And it says that Moses, upon hearing this proclamation on the character and the attributes of God, fell to the ground prostrate and begins to worship God because he's so overtaken with awe. He knew that God is powerful. He knew that God is holy. He knew that God's anger is real because he saw the, the, the plagues that had struck Egypt but there's another aspect of God. God is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving. And he goes, wow. And he's overwhelmed with this because Moses is discovering who God is. And so Jonah takes that very passage he knew quite well as a prophet and repeats it back to God. Maybe even sarcastically. I knew you're like this. You're slow to anger. You're compassionate. You're merciful. I knew you would do this. Why? Because these people don't deserve it. We should receive your mercy. We are Israel. We are your people. We are your covenant people. There is a covenant relationship between you and us. That's like, for example, take a husband and a wife, and, and the husband is very gracious with another woman. And the wife resents that and says, I'm your wife. I'm the one you should bless. I'm the one who should be receiving your gifts. No one else. That's what was happening here. People of Nineveh, according to Jonah, did not deserve to receive God's mercy. God's mercy was only for Israel. I think I've told you this story once, how a young man who was part of Napoleon's army was sentenced to death. So the mother comes and before Napoleon, and pleads for his life. He says, please have mercy on my son. And she throws herself down to the ground. Please have mercy on my son. Don't sentence him to death. He did wrong. He did everything wrong. Yes, but please. And, please. and she's begging. And he turns to her and says, your son doesn't deserve mercy. And so she answers, if it's mercy, no one deserves it. And Napoleon struck with that Sentence said, you're right. And so mercy shall have. Because that's the point of mercy. It's not deserving. But according to Jonah, Ninevites did not deserve the mercy that only Israel was to receive and no one else. And so he resented it. Let me bring you to the New Testament to clarify this even more. 
We're all acquainted with the story of the prodigal son. Remember how the younger son asks for his share of the inheritance? And after, shortly after, taking the, uh, this inheritance, and he leaves and he squanders it all. That's what prodigal means. He, he's a wasteful son. He's a squanderer, right? He wastes every single dime he received from that inheritance. And then we find him in a very dire straits, feeding off the same uh, meal that hogs would feed themselves with. And so he comes to himself and we, find, and we see that he goes back to the father, not because he wanted the father, not because he loved the father, but because he wanted the goods of the father, right? That's, that's why. No man seeks God because they desire God. Whenever they turn to God, it's because they want something from God. That's the heart of man. And when the father sees him, right, we, we see him receiving him, running towards him, welcoming him, showering him with kisses, taking the royal robe or the family robe and placing it on him and putting a ring, or, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then he says, let's have a party. Kill the fatty calf. And everybody's invited. And they're all rejoicing. And he's being treated like a hero. And like this, this young guy doesn't know what's going on, right? And we all know that story. And then finally, you, you see the older brother. He's coming back from the field. He's been working all day under the scorching sun. And as he walks back, he hears the music and he, he the loud noises and he asks a few people around. He goes, what's going on? <laughs> he says, your younger brother's home and your dad is throwing a party. We haven't had a party like this in a long time. And he gets angry. Angry. Luke 15. The story of the prodigal son is the counterpart of Jonah. That's Israel. Those are the people that are self-righteous. It was the Jews of Jesus' days, the Pharisees. And it was Israel in the days of Jonah. It's the same thing. Anger. They were upset, just like the older son was upset. Look at Luke 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry, and was not willing to go in. And his father came out. He, came, he comes out and he begins pleading with him, come in, my son. Come in, my son. Rejoice with me. That's what God is doing with Jonah. Come in, Jonah. Come in, Jonah. Rejoice with me. Jonah says, no. I don't want any part of this. Nothing at all. God is showing his angry servant that God longs to have mercy on those who are outside of the household of Israel. Outside. Isaiah 65, verses 1 to 3, foresees a day when God would be sought by others. Listen to these words. Powerful. I permitted myself, says God, to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Notice, they didn't ask for God, but they're seeking God. They're not looking for him, but they're finding God. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. 
Notice verse 2. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. What's he saying? He's comparing Israel that's rebellious, worshiping idols and following the ways of the idols. And then he's comparing the Gentiles who were idol worshipers, who did not seek after God, who wanted nothing to do with him because they knew nothing of him, and yet they're the ones that find him. That is what is prophesied by Isaiah because of Jesus Christ, who would come and bring a new message of the gospel, which is that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. Jonah is a picture of Israel. It says, no, we're the ones. We are the ones. We're your people. We have a covenant relationship with you. No one else. God is showing Jonah that there's a people outside of Israel that are his, that he's elected, that belong to him. Jonah refuses to listen. He remains unmoved by God's compassion toward sinners. Now, we don't have to be like the Israelites to be, um, we don't have to be an Israelite to be this obstinate and this angry with God. We can be even Christians today. There are Christians today that when they see God's mercy on others, they resent it. When they see others rejoicing for the gift that they've received in Christ, they resent it. And they need to repent of that. There may be someone here who needs to repent of that, just like Jonah needed to repent of it. Then let's see Jonah's request in verse 3. And so now, Lord, he says, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I'd rather die. Just kill me. I want to die. Jonah's anger leads him to say something we would never expect from a prophet. Never. Death is better than life. The psalmist wrote these words in Psalm 63. Because your favor is better than life, my lips will praise you. Your favor is better than life, not death. The child of God knows that. The person who is not in Christ would say death is better than life. That's understandable. The person is in darkness. He's dead in his sins. He, he doesn't see hope in the gospel. He doesn't understand that Christ died for him so that he could have a, a, a sonship and be at the table of the Father. And He doesn't understand this. So for him, there are moments in his life or her life that would, he would come out and say that. It's better to die. I wish I could die. But a child of God, a servant of God, Someone who knew scriptures. Why would he come to this point? Why would he actually believe that death is the only thing left for him? Because Jonah was still made of flesh. We have this treasure, Paul says, in vessels of clay. Psalm 103 tells us that the God, our Father, remembers that we are but dust. So the treasure is within these vessels that are prone 
to make these kind of statements. Prone to say things that are wrong. Prone to think that death is better than life. We have another servant of the Lord who felt the same way, Elijah. Remember how Elijah witnessed something remarkable so that God's people would repent. He didn't do it to put on a show. He prays and fire comes down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice, burns up the altar, licks up everything and all of God's people in Israel bow down. Yes, Yahweh, he is the Lord, he is God. And they admit it. Then he prays again, Elijah, for rain. For three and a half years, the land is parched because Elijah had prayed, no rain on the land. Let them repent, and then let there be rain. So he thought, okay, now they repented. So he's praying, let the rain come. And he prays, and God sends the rain. But shortly after, Jezebel threatens him, and he was expecting a new ruler, a new king. He was expecting a total change in the country. That change did not come. It was short-lived, that repentance, very short-lived. People returned to what they were doing before. So Elijah was very discouraged. And it says in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, that the whole chapter, that he runs away and he tries to find a solitary place. And it says he went by himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked for himself to die and said, enough. That's it. I'm tired of this. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He too wanted to die. Job wanted to die. These are people who serve God, faithful servants of the Lord, who desired death over life. The whole thing sounds very strange. Why? Because the treasure is in vessels of clay. At times, we can come to those moments when we make unwise decisions and say things that are uncalled for. Self-pity of this kind is rooted in a wrong identity or a wrong understanding of who God is and who we are in Christ. It's never inspired by God and it's never encouraged by God. It's interesting to see how God questions these two servants at their lowest point. To Elijah, the question God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? What are you doing hiding in Hebron? Because that's where he went to hide. And to Jonah, the question God asks, do you have a good reason to be angry? Questions. And when God asks a question, someone said, it's not because he wants information. (laughs) He already knows. It's because he wants us to think, to think it through. Why do we sink into despondency or self-pity? Why is it that we lose it? Because we lost sight of God's sovereignty. If God wants your ministry to produce much fruit or unfold in a visible way, it's his prerogative. He is God. If instead he wants your ministry to produce little fruit or no fruit and you be behind the scenes, whatever that may be, then again, it's his prerogative. He's the one who decides. The flock belongs to him. The kingdom is his. Results are determined by God. The Corinthians were boastful. Look at us. Look at what's happening in our midst. Miracles, signs, and wonders. And wow, look at all the gifts that are ours. And look at the popular speakers we have. And look at the men of God that are with us. They were kind of boastful. And so Paul answers back in his letter, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 8. 
what then is Apollos? He goes, who's Apollos? He says, who's Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Nothing. But God who causes the growth. He is everything. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We're going to be rewarded according to our faithfulness, our labor, our sacrifice for the kingdom of God. If it wasn't done for self, if it wasn't done with self-interest, if it wasn't done to gain a following, we will be rewarded or we will lose rewards. All that is required of God's servant is what? Faithfulness. All that is required is faithfulness. Faithfulness was required of Elijah. Faithfulness was required of Jonah. Faithfulness is required of us. That's it. We're called to labor for his glory and according to his will. Did Jonah dread the moment that he would have to go back to Israel and tell his, his uh, countrymen, you know, uh, nothing happened to the Ninevites. They're, they're still around. I went there and I preached and uh, they repented and God didn't annihilate them. Maybe he dreaded that moment. Imagine him going back and telling his countrymen that their arch enemy is still okay because thanks to Jonah, they're okay. That was an awkward moment. Maybe. But all he had to say is God delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. He's God. And when we repent, God forgives us. And he cleanses us and restores us. But the Israelites would have none of that as well as Jonah. They were dead set in their ways. See, for the Israelites, the Ninevites were the problem. But God was saying, the Ninevites are not your problem. You, Israel, are the problem. You are stubborn. You are obstinate. You are proud. You are rebellious. You are idolaters. You are constantly apostatizing. You're constantly defecting from me. You're the problem. That's how twisted they were now in their thinking. So, in conclusion, what should we do in light of what we've just read today? First, we need to ask the Lord to show us if there's anger in our hearts. We need to, because we may not even acknowledge it. We may not even admit it. You know, for Jonah to be angry, he had to be brought to that point where that anger was manifested. It was there, seething under the surface, but now seeing the repentance of the Ninevites, it's full-blown, it's there, it's visible. And we may not even see our anger until a situation happens and the anger comes out and the anger is manifested. So we need to repent of that because anger can wreak a lot of havoc. And we'll start saying things and doing things, making decisions that are wrong because of our anger. Secondly, we need to ask God to give us his heart for the lost. I mean, are we praying for those around us? Are we sharing the gospel? Do we delight in mercy as God delights in mercy? Are we, are we looking forward to seeing people coming to Christ? Are we praying for those we work with? Do we share the wonderful news that Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ? That God judged his son so that we could be spared judgment. Are we sharing this? Are we preaching the gospel or are we keeping it to ourselves or looking just for 
Or once in a while we may mention it, but it's not really there. We're not promoting it. And we need to say, Lord, give us your heart. There's a story of a man in the New Testament, and uh, very little is known of him. He's uh, in the company of the apostles because of his unusual um, giftings. And the gift that he had was the gift of encouragement. He just knew how to encourage, a great encourager. When Paul gets saved, he encourages the church to receive Paul, right? He's an encourager. And here we see in one instance where the church heard about the Gentiles in Antioch that had come to saving faith. And who was going to go? Who was going to go? Well, the apostles from the text, it seems, are not too eager to go. It's one thing to go see the Samaritans and to go see a proselyte by the name of Cornelius because he's a proselyte. I'll go see a proselyte. So Peter went to see Cornelius reluctantly, but he went. They went to see the Samaritans, but they went, and they confirmed the work of God amongst the Samaritans. But the Gentiles, full-fledged Gentiles, people didn't know, they weren't proselytes. These were just people who, out of nowhere, who had no understanding of the law, no understanding of Moses and the Old Testament. They were coming to the gospel. They were embracing it. Then goes, who do we send? How do we know if this is real? What's going on? And so they said, uh, Barnabas, you go. Barnabas, you go. And Barnabas made this trip to Antioch, and we read in chapters 11, chapter 11, sorry, verse 23. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now, who knows, had they sent someone else, they go, you know, you're not following the law, you don't, you're not acquainted with Moses, the Torah, you know what, you're not, I, I'm not sure, let me inquire, let me go back to Jerusalem, speak to the brothers, and I'll give you word after. It's going to take some time. He didn't do that. He witnessed the grace of God. That's what Jonah should have done. Jonah should have witnessed the grace of God Amongst the Ninevites. Why did the Ninevites repent? I mentioned it last week. They repented because God did the work. It was all God ordained. These men did not seek after God. God moved mysteriously over their hearts and brought about repentance and faith. He should have rejoiced over that. He should have delighted in the mercy of God. May the Lord give us a heart like Barnabas. May we look forward to seeing the grace of God wherever it is manifested and then confirm that grace in a heart, in a life that we are in touch with so that God's name would be glorified. Let us pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for your ways. Thank you for your delight in mercy, for the way you forgive when a sinner repents, for the way you rejoice over the one that repents much more than over the 99 that need no repentance. Thank you for those who 
are deserving of wrath, of punishment, of banishment, and yet you choose to forgive and to restore. This is all you're doing, Lord. And we thank you that you have shown us mercy. When we don't deserve mercy, absolutely not. Lord, we know how sinful we are. We know how much we have broken your laws and broken your heart. We've sinned against you. And yet, when we repented, and we still keep repenting, you forgive us. What an amazing God you are. What a merciful Savior. Lord, we bless you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for your ways. We pray that in our midst you would raise up people like Barnabas, people who encourage, who witness readily the grace of God in others and and then confirm that grace and encourage their walk with the Lord. We bless you for that, Lord, and we ask you this for your namesake and for your glory. For those who are in darkness today, for those who are still Lord, without the knowledge of saving grace, would you draw them, draw them to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bring them to the cross. Let them see that at the cross there's forgiveness. There is mercy to be found. What a wonderful throne that is. Lord, thank you for being that kind of a God towards sinners who repent. We praise you and we give you glory. In the wonderful name of Christ, Amen.